This episode of the Relentless Forward podcast is brought to you by GI Associates. GI Associates is one of the largest and also one of the best uh, gastroenterology clinics in the southeastern United States. Um, If you are over 45 and you have not gotten your colonoscopy, your colon screening, um, you need to do that now. Now, you probably noticed I said 45. I previously would say had said 50, but they recently changed the guidelines because people are getting colon cancer at younger and younger ages all the time. And so if you're over 45, you are eligible to get your colon screening. Um, to contact GI Associates, if you're in the Mississippi area, you call 601-355-1234. Tell them Jeremy or Runstrong sent you. If you're not in this area, but you want to find a good gastroenterology clinic in your area, contact your local doctor or call GI Associates and they'll put you in touch with somebody um, in your area. But it's very important to get your colon screening done. Um, So without much further ado, I want to get right to this episode of the podcast. My guest today is a gentleman by the name of Alex Hutchinson. And that name may or may not sound familiar with you, but I was introduced to Um, Alex Hutchinson's work um, last year when his book called Endure came out. The title is Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. And it's a really interesting, even if you don't like necessarily endurance sports, if you're not a marathon runner or a triathlete, there's just some really interesting stuff in here about the connection between your mind and your body and the amazing things that you can accomplish, both in sports and in life in general. So I had asked Alex, I reached out to Alex, asked him to be in the show, and he said yes. Now Alex is a pretty accomplished and amazing individual. He covered the Breaking 2 project for, for, with, that Nike did um, for Runner's World. He wrote for Runner's World for a long time. He currently writes a column for Outside um, Online called Sweat Science. You can follow him on Twitter, at Sweat Science. Um, he's a physicist and also was a member of the Canadian national uh, track team. He's just a really incredible, knowledgeable, just smart guy. He's just done a lot of amazing things. So it was, it was awesome to have him on the on the show. I was a little nervous because he's smarter than me. He's a faster runner. He's probably younger. I, and you know, so. But I got through it all right. And Alex is a great guest. He's going to give you tons of cool stories, interesting information, and um, probably find something funny or something useful that you can use in your own life. So, uh, again, thanks for listening to the show, and without further ado, Alex Hutchinson. We are live. Alex Hutchinson, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeremy. Uh, It's great to be here. It's great to have you on. I'm uh, really honored, honestly, to have you on the program. Your your book um, came out at a very timely point in my life um, where I was kind of changing a career to full-time kind of run specialty coaching and training. And your book tapped into uh, a number of the things that I'd always been wondering about once my endurance career started. So I'm super fired up to get to talk to you about this today. So thanks again. Um, so let's get, to get started, would you just tell everybody a little bit of your background and kind of what led you to writing this book, Endure? Sure. I mean, I guess the, the most relevant bit of background is, is that I was a, a competitive uh, distance runner starting, I guess, in high school is when I got started to get pretty serious about it. And I ran through college. I was a middle distance runner running like 1,500 meters and the mile and stuff like that. Um, and, and I also ran you know, cross country, longer races. And, and uh, 
uh, took that pretty seriously through through to my late twenties. It was it was in a way the number one priority in my life. And so, you know, as anyone does who who races on a regular basis, you're you're constantly pushing your limits and testing them and, and trying to understand what those limits are. So I think my interest in understanding the limits of endurance it's not it's not a, a big mystery where that came from. It's from my running background. Uh, in parallel to running, I was I, I started out actually as a physicist. I, I did uh, grad school and worked as a researcher in physics for for a number of years. Um, and it wasn't till my late twenty. I guess I was twenty eight when I sort of decided physics is really hard. And and <laughs> and I don't, I, I, I I was interested in it, but I didn't have the same passion for it that some of my my lab mates did. And I thought I'd like to find something in life uh, where where I, I feel passionate about it. And so I, I took a bit of a a gamble and switched over to journalism and you know did a one-year course in journalism and then started out as a freelance journalist with no you know just sort of at that point I was just happy to write about anything that would pay the bills but I pretty quickly started to zero in on the sort of intersection of those two previous interests which is uh, endurance and science and so I started writing about the science of endurance and gradually over a period of years started to uh, dig into some of those questions that lingered from my running days or from my serious running days, which is like, why, you know, why was it that some days were better than others? Why sometimes did I feel like I was scraping the bottom of the barrel and other times I crossed the line and feel like I I left, left some stuff out on the course. Um, and so that was about a decade ago is when I started down that road. And for the past decade, I, as a journalist in magazines and, and newspapers and things like that, I've been writing about the science of endurance and that all sort of culminated in, my book that came out earlier this year. So that's interesting. So uh, what's amazing for me as a as an amateur, very amateur, average endurance athlete to think that someone of you know relatively elite skills has the same thoughts and issues with why are why do you have bad days? Why are things not always the same? As a you know never having been elite or even sub elite, it's just it seems like those problems are problems that just us um, average folks have. But apparently that happens to everybody, even the good ones, huh? Yeah, no, I would, I would say, you know, you can you can go right up the ladder pretty high, and 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 uh, you know, people who are running at the Olympics are still wondering like, what happened out there today? Well, you know, why was today such a great day, or why was yesterday such a such a bad day? And what is it? Can I, you know, do I need to do this kind of workout or that kind of workout or eat this or eat that? Uh, you know, you know, it's a it's a constant searching process, and. Uh, you know the answers, and I, and I should say this right at the, right at the top that I, I wrote this book. It doesn't mean that the book has all the answers in it. It's still it's still a very um, you know it's a difficult understanding what your limits are is a very difficult thing to to pin down, and it's it's uh, it's not a question of like having all the answers. It's understanding what what the useful places to look are, and I, and I think you yeah, the the struggle is the same at, uh, across different levels of sport. And so that kind of goes to one thing I wanted to talk about was. <clears throat> Um, that the book, what, what I really, one of the reasons the book was so impactful for me was it doesn't try to give all the answers. You really, at some point, you can, some, some topics that you can see that you're leaning one way or another as to what's probably the most likely um, explanation for any type of certain situation. But um, you never just say this is absolutely the way it is, but it gives, still manages to give tons of useful insight. Um, so, Let's. Can you so for everybody that hasn't read the book yet and should, can you give just a real brief overview of you know what's the book about in general? Sure. Yeah, I think that 
And first of all, you know, thanks for for being tolerant of my unwillingness to pretend I, I have the answers. If, if there's one piece of feedback or, or pushback I've gotten sometimes from readers, it's like, I wish you'd connected the dots and said this. You should do A, B, and C. This is this is what you do to push your limits. And I'm like, well, I, I you know I, I don't know that. And what I want to do is give you the tools to to make up your own mind based on the available evidence, understanding that we're all we're all just kind of uh, doing our doing our best with the available evidence. But anyway, to answer your actual question, the the basic what the book is basically about is an attempt to answer the question: uh, when I'm pushing as hard as I can, when I push absolutely to my limits, what exactly is it that holds me back? Um, and you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, as a runner, I would have probably guessed: well, you know, depending on what what race it is, whether it's a short race or a long race, it's lactic acid, or it's my heart rate, or it's my ability to breathe in oxygen, or it's my muscle fibers, or it's my body temperature. You know, all these very quantifiable physiological parameters that we think of as as our limiting factors. And the overall theme of the book is looking at a, a, a a new strand of research over the last decade or so that has that that argues pretty strongly that actually these limits that feel very physical to us are actually imposed by the brain. That in one way or another, it's the brain that tells you when to stop. That doesn't mean that muscle fatigue and, and things like that are irrelevant. Just that their role is to uh, to feed back into your brain and tell you that things are getting hard, and your brain then integrates all those signals and it makes the decision. Uh, of when you can keep going and when you can't. Which so it doesn't mean that you know running or any other endurance activity is all in your head and you can just do whatever you want if you want it badly enough. But what it means is that these limits that feel like brick walls to us are often a little more negotiable than we think. And that when you when you finish a race and you feel like you've get you're, you've gone all out, you're not dead. Your muscles still work, and that there's there is still more in the tank. And so there's the the, the challenge is then how do we get at that reserve. Right, and the, the book just covers that incredibly well. And I'll let me give you two. So two big takeaways for me from the book, and then, and so just to have you know, and so we can kind of talk. This is kind of where I'd like to this discussion to go a little bit. Um, the one big takeaway for me was that, um, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, but even though the book is full of stories of you know that's the world's greatest athletes, and it's some of the smartest scientists in the world, it's it's high level stuff. But even What's great about it is the lessons and the insight that was given from all that, from the anecdotes of the great, greatest athletes or the studies of the great scientists, a lot of that insight and lessons learned can be applied even for average amateur athletes such as myself. Like we talked about at the beginning, it's not just, this isn't just for elite athletes, it's for everybody. Um, and that's one of the reasons, that, that that's the majority of athletes that I work with too, or they're average amateur athletes like myself, and, and they're their process of becoming an endurance athlete, everybody kind of comes through and starts asking these same questions. Is this all in my head? Is it, what's wrong with me? What, you know, is this, why do I have a bad day? Is it something like that? So a lot of people are learning these lessons for the first time. And and as I had started my endurance career um, as an adult, I started in my mid thirties, all these questions always popped up and I've looked and looked for answers or insight and your book kind of covered a lot of those and gave a ton of insight into them. So the one big takeaway, the first big takeaway was that it, it it's good information. It's great information for amateur average athletes, even like myself. Um, my second takeaway is the idea that toughness or resilience or ability to handle pain or adversity um, is something that ebbs and flows and almost can be trained. It can be learned. 
uh, this has kind of been a this is kind of what spurred my coaching and training career to a certain extent was because I was I've become I started doing endurance sports back in 2008 or 9 and then in 2012 and in 2016 I was diagnosed with cancer which my listeners have they all they've heard that story ad nauseum but it really I, I think I had noticed a long time ago that I felt like I was able to handle that real life adversity better because I had handled adversity by choice through endurance training. And I think from what I could see, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about this too, is that I think your book kind of proves that a little bit or points that out that that's actually a thing. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a very powerful, powerful real world example of, of these kinds of things. But I, I, I absolutely agree. And I think those are, those are two of the most important messages that I hope people will take away. So to, to give another example, it's like if you take someone who, let's say that they're, they've never been an athlete, they've never, they, they're, they're, they're sedentary and they want decide they want to run a 5K. And so they follow one of these programs that gets you from couch to 5K in some amount of time, so let's say six months, because we don't want to encourage people to go too fast. Um, it, and you, so you, you, they start doing a training program and so on. Everyone knows that their body and muscles and, and, and physical aspect is going to change over that period, that from the, from the point they, they're sitting on the couch sedentary to six months later when they've been training three times a week for a while, yes, they've, they've, maybe they've lost weight, their, their heart's stronger, their pulse is lower, and, and these are things that allow them to run faster. I think what's underappreciated is the changes that have also gone on in the mind. And, and these aren't, and I'm not even talking about you know, this is not like they've been visiting a sports psychologist or doing, you know, some brain training app. This is just from the process of endurance training, of going out there multiple times a week, pushing your limits, sometimes pushing them harder than others. Not It's not like every day you go and try and kill yourself. But the process of enduring discomfort, because let's be frank, as much as I love running, um, going out there and running hard involves managing some discomfort. And so there are measurable changes not just in your ability to run, but and this is one of the things that I talk about in the book, as you know, that there's good research where they they test other forms of pain tolerance in in athletes and say, all right, well, let's see who could tolerate the most, you know, whether it's uh, pressure, you know, pressure applied to the wrist, or uh, you know, you wrap a tourniquet around the arm and squeeze it, and then force people to clench their arms until it, it gets too painful to tolerate. Or there's ice water tests, all sorts of tests that have nothing to do with endurance activity it's just a, the, the psychological experience of being able to deal with discomfort and athletes do better at this and it's not as another thing as you as you sort of alluded to it's not something that oh you learn that trick and then it's done thank now i know how to handle pain it's something that you constantly have to work at so if you if you monitor athletes throughout a year you find that their pain tolerance in other forms for other forms of discomfort is highest just before their peak race and it's lowest during their off season because they're it's constantly ebbing and flowing as you remind yourself on a daily basis how you can deal with this pain and so it's and, and the other not to ramble here but the other important point is this isn't so first of all this isn't just just a genetic thing that some people are born with and second it's not a, a sort of physical or chemical thing it's not that the the nerve endings get dulled uh, so when they do tests you can distinguish between pain sensitivity and pain tolerance pain sensitivity is do you feel something as painful and athletes are just as likely to feel it as painful as anybody else but the the second question is pain tolerance which is how much can you handle before you say please stop and athletes can handle more and that's just a, a function of psychological coping mechanisms of learning to be able to 
feel discomfort, not panic, deal with it, uh, or, or, you know, there's lots of different techniques that are applicable in different contexts, whether it's distracting yourself by thinking of something else or reframing its emotional content. So you're just thinking this, this is information telling me how my body's feeling. It's not a reason to panic, but anyway, all of which is to say, yeah, I think those are, those are important points. And I think those are underappreciated elements of the benefits of endurance training, uh, but also some of the most powerful and some of the most transferable to other areas of your life. I agree. That's great. So one of the things that uh, your book kind of talked about was um, historically there was kind of a view of, um, I guess I'd say endurance sports, but a man as a machine. If you if you put in the if you put the right inputs in, you'll get the same output. Um, and then it kind of and I could be screwing this up, but then at some point somebody or it started going to more of a psychobiological model. Is that correct? Was that now you talk in the book about a number of pretty famous people, Samuel Marcor and Tim Noakes, and who kind of came up with this? When did the psychobiological model really start to develop, and, and what does the future of that look like? Yeah, so, I mean, first thing I should say is that, of course, when I'm trying to paint the history of exercise physiology in, 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 in a chapter of a book, it, it's it's a little simplified, obviously. So um, it's not that people in 1950 were like, oh, humans are just robots and, and they, they don't have minds. So of, of course, there's always been a sort of understanding of the complexity of humans. But I think, as you said, the, the sort of, you can, you, can, you can say that the 20th century was a time of amazing progress in understanding the human machine and understanding the fuel it burns and the, the way it produces force and, and all these sorts of things. Um, this shift towards the brain, uh, you know, th- there wasn't one one moment, but if you had to pick one moment, you would say there was a speech in 1996 by by Tim Noakes, who's a, a South African exercise scientist, at the uh, the annual meeting of the American College of Sports Medicine, where he really challenged a lot of the prevailing dogmas, the idea that VO2 max, which is your maximal aerobic capacity, that it was the sort of be all and end all of endurance performance, and 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 that led him. Or, or that was the sort of uh, the first public declaration from him that that he was he was starting to think that the brain had to be considered not as just something parallel that oh yes and of course you have to be motivated that the but that the brain was had to be really integrated in our models of endurance so that was that was 1996 I, and for quite a while Noakes was kind of a, a, a voice in the wilderness Noakes and his colleagues from from Cape Town and and it was very controversial this idea that uh, that you know what he called he called it the central governor the idea that no it's not you don't fail because your vo2 max is or your vo2 has hit its max you fail because your brain your central governor is protecting you from hitting its limits and let's say a decade later in the mid2000s, um, by then, people were really starting to pay attention to some of these critiques and other other views. Other people like Samuel Marcora, who's an Italian guy currently working in Britain, started to to add their ideas and modify Noakes's ideas. So so Marcora's contribution is to say that the real fundamental element of endurance is your perception of effort. How it feels is what matters. It doesn't matter. I mean, your core temperature matters and your lactate levels matter, but but what ultimately is most important is how your brain interprets those signals with perception of effort. And so that's been going on for, let's say, about a decade. And where we are now is that uh, there's lots of debate, lots of nobody knows the final answers. There's sort of widespread agreement, I would say, among a lot of scientists that 
the, in some way, perception of effort and the brain is, is, has to be integrated in an understanding of endurance. But there's no final final model, and I think the future is is still kind of up in the air with with lots of scientists working on different ideas. And and I, I would say it's still you know a few decades from from getting to. I mean, brain brain science is getting more and more advanced all the time. So maybe things are going to move more quickly than I expect. But but this is a very complicated behavior. Run, running a race seems like a such a such a simple act, but it's actually a very complicated thing going on in our bodies and minds. It is. I the one of the that leads me to pacing. You know, I, I see you had recently written an article about um, pacing, but I the biggest thing for people to learn, and I think that's important in life too. But it's is is pacing. They people go out and they don't understand the both the, the well the physical mechanisms of how their body is powering itself. And they go too fast and they get so tired, which then leads to mental discouragement. And I work extremely hard to try to balance those two things. But it's really something that people struggle with a lot. And they they, just the the management of their own energy systems, which then gets in their head. Well, there's a real misperception, uh, you know, dating back to, you know, Aesop's fables, the tortoise and the hare and stuff, that pacing is easy. You should just run exactly you know, whatever your pace is going to be, you should run exactly that evenly for the whole race. And it's like, that sounds easy in theory, but there's a bunch of problems with uh, with it. First of all, it means in theory, you have to know exactly what your finishing time is from the moment you start. And, and that's, that requires a level of sort of self-knowledge uh, or that, or, you know, crystal ball gazing that nobody has. You don't really know exactly how fast you can run. So it's, it's almost doomed right from the beginning to, to imagine that you can pick your pace right at the start of a race. I mean, of course, you try. You do your best to, to, to settle into that. But you, but you have to understand that there's going to, you know, on this particular day in, the, in these conditions and with your how you're feeling that day, you're never going to make a perfect estimate of, of what your pace should be. And then so what goes on is you've got, you know, th- th- thousands of micro decisions. Every time you take a step, you're deciding whether to pick it up a little or slow down a little bit. And so you're having to, to there's a psychological component to that. And there's also the, the physiology of, of, of uh, a sustained effort is not as simple as it seems. You know, the, there's, depending on your fueling, if it's a marathon, all these things go into the idea that even pacing is kind of a pipe dream. It may be the theoretical ideal, but in reality, uh, pacing is, a, is, a, is a, a big hot mess. It is. And I think, I even for training, what I, and I've heard other athletes say this too, I, I like to listen to either I listen to audiobooks. I've listened to your book. I'm not just saying this because you're here, but I've listened to it. I, now I'm on time three. I'm a third yeah, way awesome. through. But I, uh, I, I, so I'll listen to, and I'll listen to music and a playlist if I have a harder workout. And sometimes, but if I have a long, easy, you know, couple hour run, I'll put in something that's just that sets the mood a little bit for me, like a good book, like your book. It's just it it, it changes kind of my whole mental approach to. And it changes my perception of effort. When I don't have my music, sometimes I start thinking about different cues. Are my legs tired? You know, there's nothing to really distract me. So I think your uh, your book really taught me um, a lot about that perception of what I think the way you said it was, it's maybe Mark Horace said this was, it's not necessarily how you feel, but it's how you feel about how you feel. Yeah, that's a. I, I don't think that was me, but yeah, I, I, I agree with it. It's it, that's. I think Matt Fitzgerald might have said that. Uh, who's another uh, a, a running author who's written about Mark Hora's work. But it's a. Uh, yeah, it's, and 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 the important thing to understand is we have some power. We have some control over how we feel about how we feel. For sure. So, 
Um, let's talk a little bit about one of the so one of the really interesting stories I think you had, and this kind of goes along with you were talking about Tim Noakes. I think it was Noakes that said something along the lines of it's what's not interesting. It's not interesting that people die from their efforts. It's that people don't die from their efforts. And I think the chapter that you talked about there had a story of Henry Worsley. Um, and I, I had to zone in on this one or hone in on this one because I have a weird fascination with polar exploration. I think in a past life, I must've been an early Arctic explorer, but, um, can you tell us the story of, of Henry Worsley and maybe kind of Noakes concept or your concepts of, you know, the people don't die from these efforts and, and what lessons can be pulled from that? Yeah, so I mean, I should say, and and with with due gravity, that um, the end of Henry Worsley's story is that he does die. He he was a, 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 a an Antarctic enthusiast. He's actually a, a descendant of one of the guys of, of the navigator on one of the early Shackleton missions a century ago, and so he started doing. Uh, must have been eight or nine years ago. He started doing some. Uh, he, he started out with one reenactment of of one of the Shackleton expeditions across the Antarctic, and he loved that. He was a and he, you know this guy was a, a tough guy. He was a former SAS uh, soldier in, in Britain, a Special Forces soldier, and and he so he did another reenactment of another one of Shackleton's missions. And what he culminated with was this attempt a few years ago to basically ski. Uh, solo and unsupported all the way across the Antarctic. So not just to the North Pole, to the North Pole, and then through to the other side, um, you know, pulling all his own gear, uh, no no support or anything. And you know, this was obviously an extremely arduous thing to do. And he pushed very, very hard. And after about 70 days, he pushed to his limits and uh, finally radioed and said, okay, I, I, I need help. And uh, he was airlifted out six hours later or something like that. But and then airlifted across to Chile, to a hospital there. But he died of massive organ failure, and of course this made lots of headlines at the time. And this was at the time I was writing the book. This this came out, and I thought, well, this kind of really illustrates some of the things I'm, I'm talking about. So I'm going to put it in there, um, because he had, to all intents and purposes, seemingly pushed himself to death. Like this was a case he didn't. He had lots of food. He didn't die of starvation. He didn't die of cold. He didn't injure himself. He just skied until you know, as he said in one of his last dispatches that he couldn't put one ski in front of another anymore he skied till he was totally exhausted and, and ended up dying now nobody really knows what the you know what was it that he it may have been that he had some underlying medical condition like bursting an ulcer or something but um but this was interesting it's and it made me think of this conversation i'd had with noakes where he said as you said that you know the interesting thing is isn't that people die which they do occasionally whether they're running a marathon or climbing everest or trying to cross the antarctic it's that you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of people try to do these things every year, and they try to do them as hard as they can, um, and and very few, very very few, vanishingly small numbers of people actually manage to push themselves to death. And usually, when you dig deep enough, you find that people who do die, there's some underlying medical condition that may have contributed that you know they had an infection and that that compromised their ability. So to Noakes, this is evidence that. Um, there's something that prevents us because there's something that, that 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 makes sure that we don't actually push that critical point. And one of you know one of his favorite slides to put up in talks is a picture of the, just after the 1996 Olympic marathon of the the first and second the gold and silver medalists jogging around the track waving their flags. Um, and and 
this is this was a race that was you know famously close. I think it was separated by three seconds at the finish. And his point is like, if you're if there's one situation where you're going to be able to push yourself absolutely to death to to leave nothing on the the you know nothing in reserve, it's if you enter the Olympic Stadium three seconds behind the gold medal. You know this is immortality right in front of you, and all you have to do is push a little bit harder. So those guys went as hard as they could. They crossed the line. And Noakes will point at the slide and say, and what do you notice about those guys? They're not dead. They, you know, they didn't cross the line and keel over. They didn't push so hard that there was nothing left in their muscles or in their heart. They they pushed as hard as they could under the circumstances and then jogged over to the stands, grabbed a flag, and kept running. And his point is, look, if, if you're when you're running for an Olympic gold medal, if you can't push yourself to, you know, to blackout, then that suggests there's something that's preventing you because the motivation is never higher than it is at that moment. That's interesting, and I, so I after I had read your book the first time I read about that, I did a little, I do some coaching lunch and some workshops for my clients, and I did a little study on uh, the differences between um, survival um, endurance and you know selective endurance. I think is what I called it, and how there's such a thin line between. I told the story of you know Aaron Ralston, this guy that got stuck in the canyon and cut his arm off, you know he. And even he lived through that, but it's extreme, extreme endurance. And people like Shackleton, who, you know, gets trapped in the ice and then has to make it all the way back and do an 800-mile trip, it's just unbelievable. But I'm just fascinated by all that stuff and how it applies to um, our, how some of those lessons actually apply to us, that we can push ourselves a lot harder and accomplish a lot more than we think we can. Um, it's just a matter of keep pushing that limit back and back and back a little more all the time. Um, so I was listening to you on another podcast and I, this is a good, this is a good topic for some people like me or, or some of the people I coach, but I think you had said one time that, um, internal monologue matters. And maybe you don't remember saying that, but I think it was you that said that. Can you talk a little bit about, um, let's talk about the internal monologue, you know, how, how you talk to yourself, how that makes a difference. And then also some of the studies you showed where, you know, the effect of just smiling, just putting a smile on your own face or seeing smiling faces can have an impact on your performance. Yeah, for sure. I think that's this is maybe the most sort of direct takeaway that we can take from this research. And I think the two, the two things you mentioned are, are really intimately connected to each other. So first, let me start just by describing a study that I, that I think is really interesting, which is one that Samuel Marcora did uh, using basically subliminal messages or subliminal images. He, he put up Picture, he had cyclists doing a time to exhaustion test in his lab, and he put up pictures of either a smiling face or a frowning face um, in front of them. But he, the, the pictures were just flashed up for 16 milliseconds at a time, so actually impossible to see with your, at least consciously, you can, you can detect them unconsciously, but you're not aware you've even seen a picture. And the cyclists who were shown smiling faces lasted 12% uh, longer in the time to exhaustion test. And the idea here, again, was that Basically, you, you know, if you so look, if I'm happy, I smile. But there's a theory that it, it can go the other way too. If you if I smile, it'll make me feel a little happier. Or even if I see someone else smiling, it just creates a sense of a, a subtle sense of ease. And so, if you go back to this idea that what matters is not just what your lactate levels are and what your body temperature is, but how your brain's interpreting this. Your brain is making its interpretation on the background of us of a subtle sense of that things are a little easier that that you're happier and that things aren't so bad and you can keep pedaling for for another minute or two so 
subliminal messages aren't a very practical performance enhancing tool because you're not going to, uh, you know, you're presumably not going to set up, you know, subliminal billboards along the, the, the sidelines of your race. However, you can, you can think about this in other ways, like in thinking about your internal monologue. And we all have an internal monologue. It's going most of the time. And often we're not really very aware of it. But if you stop and sort of ask yourself, what am I thinking right now? Uh, you'll find that for most of us in the middle of races, that internal monologue tends to be uh, not particularly encouraging. It tends to be along the lines of, oh, my God, why do I do this? This is so hard. I can't. There's no way I can. I, I started too fast. You know, this is terrible. I'm going to die. This sucks. And and that's kind of the, the verbal or, or mental equivalent of the, the, the frowning faces flashing on the screen in front of you. It, it has an effect. It means because you're you're you're. you're you're making decisions. Can I keep up this pace on the basis of all the information uh, coming from your body? And you're and you're superimposing those decisions over this background of I suck. This is terrible. I hate this. Why am I doing this? And if you can consciously stop those mental thoughts and and change your internal monologue so that it, you're saying to yourself, I've trained for this. I can do this. I'm ready for this. Come on, keep pushing. Um, that's the mental equivalent of the the smiling faces. And 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 so look, the, this is the kind of thing that I always was very skeptical about, you know, tell me, oh, yeah, you know, put a smile on your face and, you, you know, if you believe you can achieve. Over the course of writing this book, I, I had the opportunity to dig into this research and realize that oh, actually in the last few years, there's there's some evidence you can really quantify this, this benefit. There have been studies on motivational self-talk, which is the process of becoming aware of your internal monologue, eliminating the negative thoughts and replacing them with pre-planned positive thoughts and there's studies uh, uh, you know uh, several studies showing that a week or two of motivational self-talk training can change your endurance performance so to me that's kind of like um, you know if you if you want a practical takeaway from this idea that limits are in your head it's that what you're telling yourself really matters and I <clears throat> I hit on that accidentally a few years ago I wrote a, for some of my athletes, I wrote a, before a race we had trained for, we were trained for a half or a full marathon, and I wrote a set of race rules, and I probably had read this somewhere, but I just put in there, one of the rules was just smile, just, even if you're not feeling good and you're just running along, just force a ridiculous joker-like smile onto your face, and you'll probably feel better. I said, thank a volunteer, just kind of take the focus off your negative inner monologue, and I and I I'm pretty convinced that it works. If you sometimes now I I when I'm really struggling and feeling terrible, I just I have this approach where I just laugh at myself for how terrible I feel. I just kind of <laughs> I try to detach myself and look at my you know as if I was floating above myself. I look at my my pain and suffering. I just kind of laugh like this is amusing, and I always take away. I'm probably not going to die from this. I'm just going to feel awful for a few minutes. Yeah, totally. And and this. Going back to the smiling thing, yeah, again, it's something that people have, have said for a while, and, and Elliot Kipchoge, when he, you know, who's just set the world marathon record, he smiles deliberately during races, and I always thought that was silly, yeah. and then there was a study last year that, that kind of bears this out, that was from a group in Northern Ireland, where they, they asked, they, they had runners either smile or frown or just relax while running on a treadmill, and their their running economy got 2% better, which meant they could, they could run at a given pace while burning 2% less energy. Um, when they were asked to smile. So, um, you know, not that it's a magic, uh, you know, fix all that allow you to do anything, but this idea that, again, you know, you're, you're, you're setting the tone for your own decision making and, and you can lead that. You can, you can 
you can help make yourself feel better by some simple things like making sure you're not, you know, I tend to, I, I know I, I'm much more conscious now that I, I'll often find myself, even on a, you know, just in a workout, I'll be like, oh yeah, my face is contorted into this huge grimace of agony. And it's like, it's actually not that bad. I don't need to have my face, you know, looking like someone is, you know, beating me with a stick. And so I, even if I don't smile, I just relax my face and that makes a difference. Yep, and you talked a little bit about that in the book about having a. I think there was a coach. I can't remember his name, but he just talked about your lower lip should just kind of be flapping around. And that, I think I've heard a lot. That's I, that's gone back for years for me. I remember just trying to relax, always just shake it out and relax. But so you did something interesting in the book. You, um, I believe it was Marcora who put together a brain training, um, I don't, protocol concept. I don't know what you call it, but can you talk a little bit about that? I found that pretty fascinating. Yeah. So. So, yeah, as you said, Marcora, working with the British Ministry of Defense, he put together this idea of, of training your brain. Because if you if you accept the idea that uh, you know your your brain's ability to, to push through fatigue is is a big factor in endurance performance, then you, the next question is, well, let's see, we can train our muscles to handle more fatigue. Can we train our brains to handle more fatigue? And and his idea is basically exactly the same as as the idea of physical training is, well, let's, let's have, have you do a mentally fatiguing task every, you know, five days a week for an hour, an hour a day and see if your brain gets better at handling mental fatigue. And so the mental, mentally fatiguing task is basically you sit at a computer and you, you, you play a sort of simple computer game. That's not, it's not hard, but it requires focus. So it's like five arrows flash on a screen and you have to ignore four of them. And the middle arrow, you have to press a button corresponding to which direction the arrow is pointing. And you have to do it as fast as you can. So you're just sitting there for an hour, going tap 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 tap. And it's you know, so I did it for 12 weeks uh, leading up to a. So he, he so Marcora has had some very promising results from early studies that this really has enhanced your endurance performance. So I tried it for 12 weeks before a, a marathon, and you know I can I can safely conclude that it's it's you know monumentally boring to do these tasks. So I. Um, in terms of whether it's going to be the next big thing in the sports world, um, you know, it, uh, I, I don't know. It's <laughs> it, it was challenging, and, and and I also, you know, I had trouble believing that I could just, you know, it's time consuming. Like I'm spending a lot of time sitting in front of the computer, and I'm a busy, you know, I have a, I have a life, I have a job, I, I'm trying to train for a marathon, and I'm also then trying to spend an hour a day uh, in front of the computer tapping at arrows. So that I found that really challenging, to be totally honest. So. And, and and then I ran the marathon, and who the, you know who the heck knows whether it helped or hurt because I was not an experiment. It's just me trying it out. So my conclusion at the end of that was I, I think this is a really super interesting concept. I think the fact that in Marcora's studies this seems to work, it's a, a really powerful illustration that the brain matters and that you have we should be paying attention to the brain's you know mental fatigue and the, the role the brain plays in performance. Whether brain training is the answer, I'm less convinced, and 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 I think Marcor himself recognizes that, uh, you know, there has to be some other way of training the brain that you're not. It's going to be very unlikely that you're going to get people to want to spend an hour a day um, doing these these terrifically boring tasks. Well, and <clears throat> a lot of people have jobs where they sit all day and do really dull, boring tasks all day. So are they are they would they be brain training? just by accident if they try to and this i'm this kind of this sounds like i'm being facetious but i'm actually serious if somebody 
they're an accountant and they sit in an office and they work and work and work and then they go out and train right after that. Is that sort of a way of, is that, a, is that, does that fall in the same category or is that ridiculous? I think it does. Now, I mean, I think it's not necessarily true that everything we do in front of a computer or everything we do that's boring or everything we do that's hard is, is brain training. There's certain areas of the brain that, you know, the, the, in, for instance, when you have to sustain attention on a, on task that are specifically linked to endurance. So, um, probably an accountant doing a lot of numbers that probably does do it. And so, but it, you know, it's hard in any given workday. A lot of us are doing lots of different things, but I think there is some truth to the idea that, yeah, you're going to be mentally fatigued at the end of a long workday. And that if you then go out and go for a run after that, you're going to be going for a run with mental fatigue in your brain. So you're going to be getting a sort of extra, extra mentally fatiguing boost. Um, and that's something Marcora has said too. It's like maybe you don't need to do brain training, but maybe you just need to understand that on those days when you are mentally fatigued, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Your 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 work your run might be slower that day, but you're getting brain training. Um, the other thing, to, the other sort of question about this is, it's like the pilot studies he's done have been with sort of ordinary people, quote unquote. Um, if you've got someone who's training for a marathon, and they're training 50 miles a week or more or 100 miles a week if they're an elite marathon or whatever, um, that's pretty mentally taxing too as well as physically taxing and, taxing. and so maybe they're already maxing out the mental training benefits. And so maybe adding another hour a day works if you take a bunch of random volunteers uh, from a university campus, but maybe it doesn't work if you're talking about endurance athletes who, who, who that, you know, they may have already maxed out the low-hanging fruit, or I'm sort of mixing my metaphors here, but they sure. may have already gotten the the gains you can get from mental training just by doing their physical training. That makes sense. So let's, uh, I have one more topic we need to talk about, and that is um, from one of the underlying themes of the book is I believe you were um, sent by Runner's World to cover the Nike Breaking 2 project. And for those of you that don't know, if you're not, if you listen to this, but you're not familiar with this, Nike's Breaking 2 project was their attempt to set an, un, to break two hours in a marathon. It wouldn't be an official world record but um i that was it kind of made real waves in the running community and really in the community in general but um how was your experience covering that can you tell us some about that yeah that was a really really interesting experience so i i spent about six months following the progress and and this project had been going on for a couple years already sort of under top secret conditions they were they were they were really trying to um sort of consider every possible technical or you know performance or scientific advantage they could use to try and help someone run sub two hours uh even if it wasn't an official record so and the reason it wasn't an official so they they held the race on a formula one track in northern italy they had these new vaporfly shoes with a curved carbon fiber plate in in the sole that was supposed to make the runners more four percent more efficient they had six runners draft uh leading the path or six pacemakers leading the runners in an arrowhead formation that was really optimized with like wind tunnel testing and computational fluid dynamics to to eliminate wind resistance and the problem was since you can't really find six people who can run a two-hour marathon to pace them they had to have fresh runners substituting in for the pacemakers periodically and that's you're not allowed to do that in a world record race everyone has to start the race at the same time so all these things were interesting and i spent a ton of time um you know, writing about the the technology and the the you know do, do the shoes work and how much does the drafting help and all that stuff. Um, and and again, it was it was interesting. But looking back now, I think 
my what I take away from that is actually a little different because in the end, what happened is Elliot Kipchoge, who's the reigning Olympic champion and who actually just set a, a, a standard world record uh, earlier this month or last month, I guess now, um, he ended up running two hours zero minutes and twenty five seconds, which is um, you know not a sub two hour marathon and not an official world record, but was way faster than pretty much anyone really thought was was possible. And I was there in Italy watching the race and and you know there was just this feeling there that we were witnessing something really really special that this was a performance for the ages and the breaking two thing inspired a ton of skepticism for for totally understandable reasons because it was you know at its heart it was a, a marketing effort for Nike and and people don't necessarily uh, like being marketed to um, but it was also a science experiment and an athletic endeavor and and on that on that day when Kipchoge was running it uh, it really felt like an athletic endeavor and it really felt like he was doing something that no one had done before and that would change how we thought about what was possible in the marathon and so I draw a direct line between Kipchoge running this artificial two hours zero minutes and 25 seconds in May of 2017 and then Kipchoge in September of 2018 running 201.39 and smashing the world record by a minute and 18 seconds I think he changed even even though he was tricking himself in a sense because he was doing it with in an artificial circumstances he changed his conception of what would be possible in the marathon and so when I look back to me the the big leap that took place in that breaking two race wasn't about technology or shoes it was about the mind and, and self-belief and I think Kipchoge is a master of of uh, you know the mental side of running so after the breaking two attempt did you did you kind of anticipate that maybe there would be a breakthrough like Kipchoge had recently for the to set the world record or is that was it still sort of unexpected to you because of all the controls they had in place in the test uh, so I'll try not to boast here but I will say in September of 2017, a few months after breaking two, I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times where I said, "There's a new, there's a new record coming, and it's going to be a big one." I think, and I, this is a direct quote: "I think Kipchoge is going to run 201 something." Now that was September of 2017, so my timing was a little off. What happened is it rained at the Berlin Marathon in in uh, September of 2017, so it was a, he ran a great race, but it was never going to be a record because it was raining. So then his next marathon was in. Uh, London in the spring of 2018 and it was super hot it was the hottest day in London marathon history so again he won and had a great race but it wasn't a record so then Berlin of this in this year September of 2018 was his first chance since breaking two where he had even decent weather and he did 201 something uh, which again for the record I called one year early uh, in the New York Times all right so put your prognostication skills to work again when do you think someone will break two hours Okay, so let me give a little context here. That one successful prediction of Kipchoge was in contrast to most of my predictions are terrible. Um, <laughs> in, in fact, in, in 2014, I, I did a big piece for Runner's World on the, what it would take to run a two-hour marathon. And my prediction there was that someone would run two hours in 2075, which now looks uh, awfully pe pessimistic, uh, given that we're at 201.39. Um, yeah, you know, we're, I, I, I think... I, I can make very strong arguments that no one's going to break Kipchoge's record for another 30 years. I can also make very strong arguments that someone's going to go under two hours in the next five years. Um, so I, 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 
all of my predictions are made with very low confidence because I think I just don't know which way it's going to go. My my sort of overall, if I had to, if you're going to you know nail me to the the floor and, and demand that I that I make a prediction, I would say two hours in a legit marathon in the next fifteen years, maybe maybe even. Uh, 10, 10 seems awfully soon, but yeah, ten or fifteen years, let's say. Do you think it'll? Do you think that Kipchoge's? Um, you know, you thought. How do I say this? You he kind of broke the record. You think because it he changed his perception of what was possible through the Breaking Two project. Do you think that's going to be necessary for other people to try to break his record to go through something like that to test themselves where they can push themselves to a pace and a limit to a way they've never been able to do before, or is it just going to start? I mean, will that become a protocol that people start doing, or that runners start doing? So, yeah, that's an interesting question. So, first of all, I would say Kipchoge's change in mindset was an important precondition to to him being willing to go out so fast and and run two hundred one. There's other factors that are just as important, and and we don't know exactly what they are. One is that he may be the greatest marathoner we've ever seen. Another is that the shoes, that the Nike shoes, may well be giving him a huge advantage. Um, and it's not necessarily one or the other. It's not necessarily the shoes helped him, or he had a change in belief. Because I think even if the shoes are great, he wouldn't have run 201.39 without um, the shift in belief. I do think, in terms of what comes next. I think some of this shift in belief is transferable. That it's not necessarily that I have to do something in order to believe that it's possible. I can look and say, well, someone else did that, and I know I'm a really good runner, therefore I can do that too. And I, and I should clarify here, I'm not saying that I'm going to go break the world marathon record. I'm speaking as as a hypothetical, you know, elite runner, presumably probably from Kenya. Um, so I don't think I don't think people need to go, you know, go through the whole rigmarole of of uh, you know, tricking themselves into into what they think they can they can do. I think um, I think everyone's concept of the marathon has been changed by what Kipchoge has done. That doesn't mean everyone is now going to be able to run a two hundred one. And I don't know, but it, it, if we see someone else getting into that ballpark, I think that will help reinforce for people that, that the game has changed and that it is it is possible to do that. Um, but you know, people have been trying to run fast for a long time, and and and. Uh, it may well turn out that, that despite what Kipchoge has done, it's harder to duplicate his feet than than, than we might imagine. Um, but, but let me let me put it this way: um, no one is going to run faster than two hundred one thirty nine if they don't believe they can run probably two hours. Uh, so, you know, whatever the physical elements that it takes, and there will be physical elements, it's also going to require uh, a, this sort of. Uh, a self-belief that would have been inconceivable a few years ago. And for people that are listening that don't run marathons, it might seem like a minute 39 or minute 40 to get under two is an insignificant amount. And it, and you know, for local people doing their first 5k to their second 5k, yeah, a minute 29 might not be that big of a difference, but, or a minute 40, but a minute 40 for these marathoners is a, that's a huge, that's a huge gap, isn't it? And yeah, you know, we we talked before about you know the the process of learning to 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 push a little harder, and 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 how you can get better at pushing closer to your limits. These guys who are running two o you know two o three two o four or in Kipchoge's case two o one, um, there's very little margin for error left. These guys are running 
for two hours right on the razor's edge of, of what they're capable of. And what, what you see is in a lot of marathons is if they go out and run the first half 30 seconds too fast, they explode and, and you know just have a miserable second half because they're so close to the, the red line that, that pushing just even 30 seconds or a minute too fast in the first half can, can blow them up. So a minute, a minute 39 is, is still a long, long way. And you, know, you can visualize that I, you know, I got up at 4 a.m. to watch Kipchoge set the world record, um, and so I have the image of him in the finishing straight, um, you know, far ahead of the competition finishing. But if if you imagine a hypothetical two-hour runner, a minute and 39 seconds in front of him, that that runner is is you know 600 meters ahead of him, uh, which is which is you know more than a lap of a you know, a lap and a half of a standard track, and and you can't just sort of sort of say, well, I'm going to grit my teeth and catch up 600 meters that's that's a long way yeah and if you don't believe it go out to a track if you're an average amateur runner go out to a track and try to run the pace that he ran for the whole marathon for just say 400 meters and you will find out just it's probably i don't know if most people can even do that it's such an incredibly fast and powerful pace i would say the vast majority of people would would struggle so it, it, I think it's uh, I maybe maybe off here, but from memory I think it's a 69 second 400. So running a 69 second lap is is not something you roll roll out of bed and do uh, no. without thinking about it. It's, it's something a lot of people would would not be able to do. And he's he's doing, you know, what is it, 104 of those or something like that. Oh, it's incredible. So um, last question on the breaking two: Did you get to wear the shoes, the version of the shoes that the racers wear? Did you get to try? I them? did not. I did not get to try the elite. The, the 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 version of the shoes that they wore was custom made for for each racer. I I was there at at Nike headquarters at one point when they were doing some of the testing, and they'd had multiple prototypes for each runner with the stiffness of the carbon fiber plate, uh, slightly different in each one, and they were they were testing to see which version of the shoe made them uh, most efficient. So they they they, they did not offer to uh, to make a, a custom pair of shoes for me. I did get a chance to try running in the the uh the vaporfly four percent which is the consumer version of that shoe um and it, it, it's a different feel like it's it, you stand in those shoes and it's like they're they're it's very hard to stand still in the shoes they're, they mm. you feel like you feel uncomfortable standing still and you feel comfortable running they're kind of pushing you forward um and and look i should i should say that's we could spend an hour talking about the shoes and whether a shoe that makes you four percent more efficient is uh, is fair, uh, or, or whether it should be regulated, or, or or what the case may be. It's 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 a big question, but for now they're they're permitted, and uh, and they seem to be they seem to be uh, making a substantial difference to people like Jogi. I would take four percent improvement in my. Uh, I would wear those shoes if I could get four percent improvement in my marathon time. I, I'm at that point where I could use four percent, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So let's. So I know you got to go. So let's wrap this up. Um, what's the number one piece of advice you'd give to you know average amateur endurance athletes? Yeah, you know, I, I wish it was something flashy like you know take beet juice or something, but really it's just uh, you know show up and be patient. I think that the the number one way that people fall off the bus is they get excited and they get uh, you know a little bit greedy and want to get there sooner. And look, sports like running, 
involve a lot of injuries uh, if you're not careful, and or just even you know whatever the sport is, it, uh, you get burned out or try to try and do too much too soon. And I think most people dramatically overestimate what they can accomplish in the next month or so or the next three months, and they underestimate what they can accomplish in the next year. So take your time, build up slowly, uh, and if you know if you show up, whatever it is, it fits works for you. Three days a week, five days a week, seven days a week. If you show up like that for a year or two, you'll be amazed at how far you can get. It's great advice. So was there was there anything that really surprised you while you were writing this book? Was there anything that just you didn't expect that totally just blindsided you? Yes. Yes, there was. <laughs> so a lot of the running stuff, like I, I was reporting on this over the course of about 10 years, so uh, there, it wasn't like a, a, a eureka moment with, with the, the running-related stuff. But as I was trying to understand some of these limits and digging into some of the byways, so I wanted, you know, is oxygen a, oxygen a limiting factor? Because, of course, during endurance exercise, you're always breathing hard. Um, so I, that led me to kind of look into the literature on things like free diving and breath holding, like, so if oxygen is a limiting factor, how long can we go without oxygen? And that led me to realize that the world record for static breath holding, for just like take a breath and hold it, is uh, 11 minutes and I think it's 11 minutes and 40 seconds, which is just, just ludicrous. And it totally re, you know, reoriented my understanding of what it means to be out of breath. Uh, what I realized is when, I, when it feels like you're out of breath, you're not. That's just your body kind of getting panicking and deciding that you need to breathe it's actually you have too much carbon dioxide in your blood you're not out of oxygen and if you can learn to just ignore that feeling you can just sit there not breathing for 11 minutes <laughs> which is crazy that is an excessively long time i'm not going to try that anytime soon that sounds that sounds pretty pretty miserable yeah. uh all right can you give our listeners just one book recommendation, other than your own, which is called Endure, by the way. It's called Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performances, um, or Human Performance. What other book would you recommend, one book recommendation? It's a tough one. I, I, it, sticking in the sort of same genre as my book, I would say the book that inspired mine the most and that I used as a model in terms of uh, how it handled science and tried to combine good science, rigorous science with great storytelling uh, would be David Epstein's The Sports Gene. Um, a really, really great book. Um, and, and like I said, I've been reporting on sports science for well over a decade. And so often I read books and it's like all the stories are the stories I've heard before and it's all kind of rehashed. David managed to dig up a bunch of amazing stories that I'd never heard before and that really reshaped my sort of understanding of the, the, the role of genetics and environment in sport and also didn't try and come to a simple answer where it's like it's all this or it's all that. It's, it's a very nuanced book. So I highly recommend that. I second that recommendation. That book is absolutely fantastic. That's one of my two or three favorite books and right in there with yours. So that's great. Um, where can um, people... So I know where to go. I follow you on Twitter at Sweat Science, I believe is right. And then Outside Online, you write for Outside Online, you write a bunch of amazing articles that I actually steal a bunch of information from when I go to coach for my to write articles or topics for my um, training group. But where can people go to to get the get the stuff you're writing to follow you and to keep up with you? You know what the the Twitter that you mentioned, which is, is, is at Sweat Science, is uh, is probably the number one place to go because anytime I write something, I'll, I'll post a link to it there, and also post links to other stuff that I'm reading that that uh, that I find interesting. I do have a website, alexhutchinson.net, that has some of my older art articles posted and some you know biography stuff. Um, 
So yeah, that works too. And there's a there's a mail if you go to any of my articles, there's a link to a mailing list where you can get uh, you know once a month or so. I'll just send out a link to all the articles I've written in the previous month. Uh, but number one place to sort of keep on top of things is uh, is Twitter. That's great. It's uh, it's all amazing stuff, Alex. I cannot thank you enough, honestly, from the bottom of my heart for coming on. The show, when I asked, when I sent you a message and asked you to come on, I really didn't expect to hear anything back, not because of any preconceived notions about you. I just figured you had so many things to do. So your time is really valuable, and I, and I honestly, it means a lot to me. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Well, thanks, Jeremy. This was fun, and I always, uh, I, I would never miss a chance to have a nice conversation like this. Great. Thanks. <laughs>